We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. Yes, it's so fun to be in studio with you. You know, maybe we ought to let the people know yes. that this is this is not going to continue. You're going to turn into a guest. I know. Instead of a hostess or a I host. I know. So it, those of you that have enjoyed our relationship, we're still enjoying our friendship. Yes, of course. That doesn't change. But Jasmine is moving to Montana. You want to yes. talk just a little bit about what the Lord's leading you to do? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was crazy. I um, finished grad school last year and um, just really felt like the Lord was calling me to step out and do more with like teaching and education. And I applied all over the place. And uh, the most clear opportunity the Lord opened up was in Montana. And so I'm going to be living up in Kalispell, up near the border of Canada, which is where um, Glacier National Park is. So that might be familiar to some of our listeners. And so there's a a little Christian college that is moving. uh, They're in a transition period right now, and they needed some new staff. And so the Lord just really connected me with the faculty there, and I felt like, okay, I'm going. So right now it's called Yellowstone Christian College. It's going to be called Montana Christian College. Like I said, they're in transition, but it just was a neat opportunity. And what will you be teaching there? Well, history, of course. Isn't that and exciting? Math. Weird. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited about the history because uh, that's just something that Jasmine and I have in common, these missionary biographies and our love of that. Plus, you've mm. been doing another project. You've been working with— uh, Rob Douglas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Doing some, yeah, for his school of missions, they're mm-hmm. doing a bunch of um, women worth knowing. recordings of, <laughs> yeah, basically, right, of missionary stories and biographies. Mm-hmm. And since I've taught classes on that for the Bible college for so many years, he's like, hey, would you come and do these um, mm-hmm. recordings for us? So that's been really fun, too. I'm that getting is... it all in before I leave. And I know. So I know. So it's we're going to be hearing from Jasmine as much as possible until she leaves. In fact, I'm going to take a back seat for the next oh, wow. couple okay. episodes because I just want to just uh, get all that I can uh, from Jasmine and allow you to get all that you can. But um, this is not the end. Um, as soon as she gets acclimated and she's got her syllabus down and, you know, oh, yeah, might be that. like Ugh. six months to a year. Mm-hmm. She'll be making regular, um, well, it's not an appearance because we're over radio, but uh, she'll be. <laughs> is that, an, I don't know. What is that? What is that? You'll be so coming. I'll be, I'll be yes. popping in on audio. <laughs> That's I don't right. know. Yeah. And yes, will, I would. Yes. It will to. be so good because I will not say goodbye to this girl forever. Good. I refuse. She's one of my favorite people in the whole <laughs> world. And I love the chemistry, too. Yes, totally. So we do have a new host who will be um, taking Jasmine's place. And we're really excited about that. But you're going to have to just wait and be oh. surprised. Jasmine knows. I do. I know. I'm not saying and, a word. And we're excited. <laughs> it's just a it's a God thing. But boy, totally. are we going to miss I know. Jasmine. This has been really great. I know. But so. You know, that's why I like saying au revoir, because you're coming back. I yes, mean, it's not, see you later. Yes. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I would be, yes, honored to continue. So we wanted to tell in. you that before we got to part two, but we have a part two. Oh, yes, we do have a part two. Yes. A and part so, two. Just to give you a heads up, that's so you right. don't wonder, like, I'm not going to just suddenly disappear and you won't have any idea what happened. So, yes. <laughs> but we also have not only a part two with Jasmine's life, but this is part two of Sarah Edwards. Sarah Edwards, that's and right. I don't know if you remember part one. She was the wife of Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was from Connecticut. She was actually 
born um, in the United States, which was really pretty. Uh, yeah, at this point. She's, this I think, uh, third generation. So her father sh- and she were both born in the United States, but I think her grandfather was born in England, but I'm not sure. Probably. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he was one of the original Puritans that came over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Pretty yeah, exciting. I know stuff. it actually is pretty remarkable. We don't think mm-hmm. about that, but you know, this is very early 1700s. So, I mean, it's still very much colonies, very frontier. Mm-hmm. And you know what, too? In England at this time, you've got John Bunyan. Yes, who we just talked about in the last right. episode. So, yes. Um, I, I had never, I read these books by Gilbert Morris, which are historical fiction, but they're mm. excellent if you ever Heard get your hands yeah. on a Gilbert Morris book. But what it does is it tells you what's going on spiritually in England at the same time of what is going on spiritually in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think they're called the Winslow Chronicles. They're yes. really, really good. So anyway, um, John Bunyan is alive at this time. Uh, Charles II is over England. And so that's why... Um, Oh, wait, this would have been a little, this would have been after the monarchy, uh, after William William and Mary. Mary. This would have been William and Mary, yeah, which we talked about at the end Mm -hmm. of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And that's where Maryland was named after uh, William's wife, wasn't it? Or was it named after? I think it was named after Queen Mary, actually, because the founder of Maryland was Lord Baltimore, who was Catholic. Right. That's why Baltimore, the capital. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I know Virginia was named after uh, Queen Elizabeth. Yes, the Virgin Queen. I know we have all these interesting connections. Yes, and all these trivial things. But this is not Sarah. Sorry, sorry. I know we could go off on this all day. Sorry about that. No, no, I love it. (laughs) I do that too. So, um, yes. So remember, we were talking about like how their home spoke volumes to people and really made just as much of an impact as Jonathan's teaching and theology because they were seeing it lived out. You know, he wasn't a hypocrite. They really, you know, all he was preaching and teaching, it was lived out in the home. And Sarah was just such a remarkable example. Again, it's kind of unusual because you see her pop up in people's journals and writings. They write about her as, mm-hmm. you know, and not just Jonathan. Oh, I went and saw Jonathan Edwards. But remember, I mentioned George Whitfield was so impacted by her that he started praying more for a wife. Um, and the same thing with this uh, young man um, named— Samuel. Ah, Hopkins. Yes, Hopkins. Sorry, there's another Samuel coming up later, and oh, so I got confused right. there. Yes, and so and Hopkins, him, him too. He was so impacted. He wrote a lot about their family life, and so um, they had lots of guests all the time. Um, not only that, but Sarah bore eleven children as well, which is crazy. Which is interesting. Again, you've got a household of eleven children, and yet <laughs> it's so in order. She was really the one who was um, over the children, but it's interesting because. Not one of their children died in infancy. Oh, one. A one day. Yes, only one. But, but they were all amazing. live births, yes. too. I mean, which just did not happen that at that not. time. did not. And when you consider how primitive the place where they were living, you know, there's no hospital then. These are all home births. Yes, it was really amazing. And she was, like, like you were saying, I'm glad you mentioned that, she was an incredible manager of the household. And so Hopkins actually described her child rearing like this. This is what he observed. She had an excellent way of governing her children. She knew how to make them regard and obey her cheerfully without loud, angry words, much less heavy blows. If any correction was necessary, she did not administer it in a passion. In her directions in matters of importance, she would address herself to the reason of her children that they might not only know her will, but at the same time be convinced of the reasonableness of her will. (laughs) Her system, her system of, that's a gift. Mm -hmm. Her system of discipline was begun at a very early age, and it was her rule to resist the first as well as every subsequent exhibition of temper or disobedience in the child, wisely reflecting that until a child will obey his parents, he can never be brought to obey God. 
Uh, one other biographer said she was never known to raise her voice, which is pretty wow. crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. she was able to have that kind Especially of— Especially with 11 children. And you've discipline. got some boys there, too. Oh, my you goodness. Know? Yes. So, I mean, a lot of girls, one thing but if yes, it was, a few boys. It was only girls, but you've got girls and boys. And then, two, you know, girls. But uh, <laughs> actually, the daughters were known as beauties, too. Mm-hmm. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. And so they were obviously so busy. You would imagine just chaos. But in spite of that busyness, like I said, it was it was very orderly. And Jonathan and Sarah also really prioritized making time for each other um, by trying to just stay interruptible which was pretty remarkable. And so if Sarah ever really needed to interrupt her husband in his study, he would give her his undivided attention. Uh, Again, very unusual for some of these studious men. Remember Martin Luther, who, when he first got married, like locked himself in his study for three days. I mean, (laughs) this was a totally different kind of a situation here. Uh, Jonathan also would interrupt Sarah's daily housework and take her out horseback riding uh, to give her a break. The doctors had told her at one point that uh, horseback riding out in the air, you know, just out in the countryside was really good for her. And so he made sure that they did those things, that they took those breaks. And most importantly, every night they would uh, make sure to carve out a time for personal devotions together after all the kids went to bed. So and prayer too. Yeah, and prayer. And so mm-hmm. just very, you know, that that order, it wasn't legalistic. It was just a way to just maintain um, priorities in their relationships and making sure God came first. And then, you know, there's their marriage, the family. It just ran very well. So uh, after seven years in Northampton, the Edwards became part of the scattered revivals that I mentioned in the last episode that would eventually lead to the Great Awakening. Um, And so it began for them way back in 1734, which was about five years before the Great Awakening really came into form. Uh, when Jonathan gave a sermon from 1 Corinthians 13, which is good to note. I always note this in my church history class because a lot of people think of Jonathan Edwards as this stern, angry preacher because of that sermon, Sinners in the ha- in the Hands of an Angry God. But he actually mostly preached about the love of God if you looked at the collection of what he, what he preached and taught. And a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 obviously had to do with love. <laughs> and so After that message, Jonathan wrote, scarcely a single person in the whole town was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. So it was clear that God was pouring out his spirit. And that lasted for about a year, this little mini revival. And sometimes it could get a little bit wild and emotional. And somebody like Jonathan Edwards, who was very logical and, you know, um, liked to uh, refrain from that kind of a thing. He wanted revival, but he really was trying to keep that kind of overly ecstatic experience down to make sure that there were genuine conversions. Well, uh, like I said, the revival died down the following year, 1735. And unfortunately, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people just kind of reverted back to their old habits and even some old sins. And that kind of was a discouraging time in the community. It put a damper on things. And Sarah herself had been deeply affected by all of this because she had really experienced the grace of God in a fresh way during that revival. And now during the post-revival letdown, she was starting to get kind of irritable, anxious, unsettled in her relationship with the Lord. And she was still trying to maintain everything outwardly, but Jonathan knew something was bothering her inwardly, but she didn't really tell him about it. It was something she was just privately wrestling with uh, before the Lord. And that went on for a few years And it was exacerbated by um, the fact that they were having a lot of financial problems during this time. Uh, Sarah's sister died. And so she just really was going through a real rough patch in her relationship with the Lord. And for somebody like her who had such a close connection to God, this was very distressing to feel like that connection wasn't there. 
Well, then in 1739, again, this is a few years down the road, George Whitfield strolls into town. And he is, of course, a vibrant, powerful speaker. And he became kind of the, I don't know if you'd say the lightning rod. I don't know if that's the right term. Um, but he kind of unified all of these little revivals into the Great Awakening movement, where the, which would just kind of spread throughout all of the colonies. And so as a result of his preaching, Northampton once again experienced revival. And then when Whitfield returned back home to England, uh, Jonathan kind of fanned that flame for the next several years. He began speaking uh, throughout New England himself, which was different uh, for him, just this travel, traveling and preaching. And this was when he wrote his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was actually in 1742 at the tail end of the Great Awakening. Um, interestingly, that same year, 1742, while Jonathan was away, Sarah was going through another rough patch spiritually. Um, she said, I felt very uneasy and unhappy. I thought I very much needed help from God. I had for some time been earnestly wrestling with God. That's an understatement, some time. I mean, it had been years. And it's interesting because, um, because she finally figured out during this time what was at the crux of the problem in her life. And to her surprise, the Lord used a young guest preacher named Samuel Buell to bring about that breakthrough finally in her walk. Uh, because Sarah, for years, um, she really struggled with pride, but not just pride in herself, pride in her husband. She was very defensive of her husband's reputation, and she wanted Jonathan to be the one that God used the most. And so she actually, I think at one point, got into kind of an ugly conversation with another preacher. Like she would get a little bit like over the top and it might sound kind of sweet, like, oh, that's neat. She wants to be a supportive wife, but it was actually kind of ugly and it could get really unhealthy the way that she would act about all of this. And so um, when Buell came into town while Jonathan was away, she once again started to have those feelings of jealousy. She started to get very territorial and then the Lord convicted her and it was almost like the Lord was asking her, Sarah, are you, would you rejoice in the preaching of my word, even if it was more effective through somebody else because of it's my word? And that really busted her. So in the end, she swallowed her pride. She went to Buell's service and she found herself just having a major breakthrough. She was filled with the joy of the Lord like she'd never experienced before. And she wrote in her journal about this. She said uh, her soul dwelt on high, was lost in God, and she could hardly refrain from she said, I couldn't refrain from rising from my seat and leaping for joy. I experienced a sense of the infinite beauty and amiableness of Christ's person, the heavenly sweetness of his transcendent love. I never felt such an entire self, uh, sorry, entire emptiness of self-love or any regard to any private selfish interests of my own. I felt the opinions of the world concerning me were nothing, and I had wonderful access to God in prayer. And so this was what had been holding her back all these years, the private selfish interests and the opinions of the world. She realized that she hadn't been able to have the victorious life in Christ. Of course, she was still a believer and the Lord was still using her. But personally, she just went into this whole new, under this whole new level with the Lord um, once she just um, stopped caring about what people thought, basically. And so it's sweet. The simple act of attending Samuel Buell's service was a turning point in her walk with the Lord. And um, she just didn't have any prejudice against him anymore. She didn't care. <laughs> and so that freedom uh, was just so beautiful. She now sought just the favor of the Lord and his good opinion of her. And that was huge. And it impacted Jonathan as well. When he got home, he was immediately aware that she was transformed. And he said she was at rest with herself as well as with God. 
Um, Jonathan, Jonathan said he was amazed at her constant sweet peace, calm serenity of soul. Whatever she did, she was now doing for the glory of God, not for the admiration of men. And again, Jonathan was such an analytical person, um, and he almost like viewed everything around him, happening around him as if through a microscope, like, oh, I could record observations on this. <laughs> um, and so he was often tempted to even view his wife's more emotional side and her um, deep spirituality as like a hysteria. But it's really cool because over the years, he grew to really respect her walk with the Lord. And especially after this, you know, seeing what she had gone through and recognizing this was a work of God, it really made him want that deeper experience for himself. In fact, he wrote, if such things are enthusiasm and the offspring of a distempered brain, then let my brain be possessed evermore of that happy distemper. He's like, I want what you have, Sarah. I want that kind of uh, depth. And so I, I love that she brought that really important aspect to his relationship with the Lord. And you can you can bet it made him a better writer, a better preacher, a better theologian as a result. Now, for years, the Northampton Church had been a little bit disgruntled about the Edwards lifestyle because they felt that the Edwards lived well above their means. But you got to remember, they had come out of high society in New Haven, so they didn't really know any different. It would kind of like be sending, I guess, somebody from Orange County to live in this little rural farming community. That's a hard transition. It doesn't come naturally maybe over time, but it's not going to be easy. Uh, but more significantly, so the church was, you know, there were people that were kind of me, 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 disgruntled about this. But more significantly, the congregation was really irritated because Jonathan insisted that unbelievers and non-committed persons should not be allowed baptism or church membership. Or communion. Yeah, yeah, or communion, right. And so the congregate, but the thing is, the Congregationalists, that was the denomination they were a part of. The Congregationalists came out of that old school European mentality that everybody in the community should be baptized as infants into the church. We talked about this going back to the Reformation. But Edwards saw that biblically that wasn't true, that you needed to make a real profession of faith in order to take communion, like you said, or be baptized, that, that you can't just throw everyone in when they're babies and can't make that choice. And so... This actually was a major issue in the American colonies, especially in New England, where the Puritans were. It led to this thing called the halfway covenant, where they were, you know, so worried that somehow they had failed God because people weren't in the church. So oh, I guess we better just baptize everybody in any way, even if they don't profess faith. So there was just a lot of weirdness that went on. And this was all right in the middle of that time in the mid 1700s. And so uh, the combination of those two issues, especially the theological issues, eventually led to the Edwards being dismissed from the church in Northampton in 1750. But what's really interesting is they didn't want to go back to high society. They actually felt called to go even further into rugged territory and become missionaries to the Native Americans. I think that's pretty cool and commendable of them, you know? They're like, well, we could go back to New Haven, but no, we're going to go and, and be missionaries well, among it, the Native Americans. Because, you know, by this time they're in their, you know, 40s, which would have been right. old. <laughs> yeah. Back then, yes. you're, man, you're lucky to still be alive. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, they went to the frontier town of Stockbridge. And I love Stockbridge. It's beautiful in the, in the Berkshire Mountains, um, western Massachusetts. That's where the Norman Rockwell Museum is. It's fun. But anyway, at the time, it was pretty rugged. <laughs> Um, so this obviously would be a little more of an isolated area. There's going to be culture shock and starting to try to acclimate to um, learning the Native Americans' ways. 
But this ended up being one of the most fruitful seasons of their lives, which is pretty sweet. also the time of the French and Indian Wars. Yes. And then that broke out, right? The French and Indian War started in 1754. And the Edwards uh, homestead ended up becoming kind of a compound for, you know, displaced settlers and soldiers. It was so wild. At one time, actually, Sarah submitted a, a bill to the colonial government for 800 dinners and seven gallons of rum. So, I mean, (laughs) so at this point, it was just pretty chaotic and wild, as you can imagine. Um, And so uh, they but, you know, like I said, they they somehow thrived during this time. Some of their younger children actually became um, practically Native American because they were hanging out with them all the time. They're one of their youngest sons. Uh, became um, a master of the Mohawk languages and wrote works on it later in life. He became a real um, significant scholar who knew their language and their customs better than anybody. He actually, uh, even as a little boy, would help his dad. Like, oh, dad, this is what this custom means. And if you're, you know, run your sermon by me and I'll correct it. You know, I mean, it was pretty amazing. Um, So a few years later, Jonathan received an invitation to- Seven years later. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, Jonathan received an invitation to become president of Princeton University after his son-in-law, Aaron Burr, died. Um, His daughter, Esther, the the most most beautiful of the family, had married Aaron Burr and he had passed away tragically. Gosh, they were only married like six or seven years or something like that. And he died. And so they asked Jonathan to come on staff and be the president of Princeton. And he really didn't want to go because this had been a really... um, Not only fruitful time for the family out there um, among the Native Americans, but Jonathan had done a lot of writing during this time. This is when he did a lot of his theological writing. And so he felt like, gosh, I've been really prolific. I don't know if I'll be able to do that if I take this position. So he really stalled for a while. Uh, Finally, he said he would go um, in January of 1758. And and Sarah was supposed to follow a few months later. But tragically, uh, Jonathan contracted smallpox while testing the new smallpox vaccine which had actually worked on several in several cases. So who knows what happened here, but Jonathan ended up contracting smallpox. And by March, he and his daughter, Esther, who also got the vaccine, they both passed away. And Esther was, like I said, Aaron Burr's widow. So just this real family tragedy, all of this loss suddenly. Um, Jonathan wasn't even able to say goodbye to Sarah because she was on her way when she found out what had happened. Um, she was on her way to see him and he died before she could get there. So very sad. His final words were, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union that has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and will therefore continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and will submit cheerfully to the will of God. And I think he knew that she would because she was so grounded in the Lord that she was able to stand uh, under such a heavy loss. In fact, she wrote to Esther, A holy good God has covered us with a dark cloud. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him for so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. So such a beautiful spiritual maturity. She's like, yes, of course, I'm grieving, but my heart is the Lord's. And it's actually sad she wrote that letter to Esther not knowing that Esther had also died from smallpox. And so, oh, man. And then when she found out, she went to find her grandchildren, Mm. Sally and Aaron Burr. And what's interesting about Aaron Burr is he will become a president of the United States. Vice president. Vice president of the United States. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he became a vice president. So, I mean, wow, (laughs) the legacy there. But but Uh, the 
other interesting thing is, though, is that, you know, she's going to find them, but by this time they're in Philadelphia, right? Isn't that? I don't have that part. They, the, so uh, Sarah went to Newark mm. for her um, find her orphan grandchildren. Right, right. And then she left out of Princeton mm-hmm. um, where the grandchildren had been taken. So. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, so all this is going on. Mm-hmm. And so she gets the kids. But then sadly, Sarah didn't live much longer than that either. Six months after Jonathan died, she was on a journey. I can't remember where she was going. And she died suddenly of dysentery at the age of 48 with no family members around. It was mm-hmm. so sad um, that they, you know, just the parents lost in such a short span of time. But Again, what a beautiful testimony, legacy. She was an example of that uncommon wife that Jonathan had described her as, as so committed to the Lord. And the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edward, well, Edwards are a real powerful testament to their legacy. In 1900, somebody actually compiled a list wow. up to that point, And it goes beyond that. But mm-hmm. uh, it includes 13 college presidents, wow. 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, including who you mentioned, Aaron Brewer, one of the vice presidents. But he's famous now because of the play Hamilton. Yes, I know for uh, notorious reasons, (laughs) but (laughs) unfortunately. We're not sure he was a good guy. Yeah, but it's like, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, But he was a vice president. He was. Under Thomas Jefferson, what can we say? Yeah, we'll give him props for that. Yes. Um, They also, but also three U.S. senators, uh, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, controller of the U.S. Treasury, uh, and then tons of missionaries and ministers, which is sweet. Uh, One of their daughters married a future state governor. Another daughter was engaged to missionary David Brainerd, who Mm -hmm. might be familiar if you know anything about missions history and his work pioneering among the Native Americans as a missionary. Mm -hmm. In Um, fact, he died, I think, in uh, mm -hmm. Jonathan and Sarah's house. Yes, he was being nursed. Yeah, because he was engaged to Jerusha, their daughter. Mm -hmm. She was trying to nurse him back to health. Mm -hmm. They didn't realize. And it's kind of funny because this is all this whole thing is kind of ironic because Jonathan Edwards was kind of a germaphobe. And um, very much into cleanliness and all of that. But he didn't realize tuberculosis was contagious. And so mm-hmm. they had him in the home there with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually – but he was progressive because mm-hmm. he was willing to try those vaccines. And I think, too, um, Sarah and Jonathan, you've got to bring out this part, too, mm. is that in ministering to the Indians and their willingness to minister to the Indians, they were going against the status quo. That very was much so. really, really unpopular with the big businesses that were coming into the United States because they wanted a land grab and mm-hmm. they wanted to get rid of the Indians. And so they said they were savages. That's what they yeah, called exactly. them. Yeah, exactly. Dehumanizing. Because if they could dehumanize them, right, then they could take their land mm-hmm. um, with impunity. And when they got saved and they had to be recognized, the Indians had to be recognized as, yep. you know, in the image of God and a yes. brother and sister in Christ. It changed everything. And these big businesses couldn't do the land grab. Yeah. So, um, again, what Jonathan and Sarah did was astounding. It was really important. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, connecting with that was David Brainerd because right. he was a That's young right. man who was a missionary to the Native Americans. That's right. And Jonathan Edwards loved David Brainerd and um, just loved his heart for the— for the Native Americans and for the people. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because, yeah, as the Native Americans would get, you know, saved and then helped by the missionaries. I mean, at one point, David Brainerd actually opened a uh, or he started a township mm-hmm. with the Native Americans mm-hmm. called Cranberry, interestingly enough. And so that kind of thing. Yeah, it would keep those greedy settlers from doing all they wanted to do. Right. So 
That's but right. anyway, yeah. So, I mean, just quite a legacy. Their grandson, Timothy Dwight, actually was a key figure in the second Great Awakening. And the list seriously goes on. In fact, it's crazy. My parents, um, I think I've mentioned they moved to Yuma, Arizona, when they retired off the mission field a few months ago. And my mom was reading on like a history of Yuma from like this uh, colonel who was stationed out there when it was kind of the Wild West. And his wife was one of the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. It's like, what in the world? They're everywhere. Well, with 11 children, you're going to have a lot of yeah. descendants. <laughs> yeah, you got a yeah, point there. And 10 of them survived. So, I mean, yeah, you got good. Yeah. Yes, you've got, you've got quite <laughs> good a few. chance for an influence there. That's right. So, yeah. So we're so glad you joined us. We're running out of time mm -hmm. here. But again, we wanted to reiterate that not only do we love these women that we talked about from history and, oh, my, we have so many more to cover. Um, Jasmine's going to cover as many as she can before mm -hmm. she moves to Montana. But we have even more that we're ready to bring to you. But we would love um, to feature on every episode mm. um, maybe a woman from your life or shout outs maybe for your mm. mom or mm -hmm. for an aunt or for a neighbor or somebody who really uh, ministered to you. And I've got my own shout out that I'm going to do in a couple of weeks. Um, somebody that... Um, Probably people don't know who is a great influence in my life. Mm. And I just think about all those women that God has used in our life. Uh, in the life earlier, last episode, we talked about John Bunyan. And John Bunyan cited at least six women yep. who were influential in his life. Mm -hmm. And so we want to talk a little bit about contemporary women mm -hmm. that have been influential too. But that's for another episode. But yes. if you have um, a shout out that you want to send us... Please let us know, and you can write to uh, graciouswords.com and find the link to WWK Women Worth Knowing, mm -hmm. and just tell us all about it, because yes. we are all ears. Yes. Or eyes, I guess, if we're yeah. reading it, yeah, right? Yeah, we'll read it, and then you'll be all ears when we tell <laughs> That's you right. That's the right. story. That works out, right? <laughs> yeah, you said it right. <laughs> so thank you again for joining us. I, I love talking about Sarah Edwards. I know. That was excellent. Such a gem. I yes. know. Yeah. Definitely women worth knowing. Puritan women worth knowing here that we've done. So That's right. <laughs> and more to come. That's right. So we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.